Hi there, I'm Mia Clark, the creator of the Black Wall Street 1921 podcast. When I started this podcast, I had every episode mapped out. But as we know, things don't always go as planned. Recently, a listener reached out to me to tell me she was the descendant of one of the most notorious Black Wall Street legends. At the time of the massacre, he had already developed a reputation for himself and was well known by many in Tulsa's predominantly African-American district of Greenwood, including Bishop Otis G. Clark, who you're about to hear from. Now, this particular character has since become the subject of folklore, so I decided to add this episode as a bonus and try to figure out what really happened in his life and do a deep dive into his story as well as that of his descendants. I think there's a lot we can all learn from this story. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I was going to try to get out of that. But when I got out to 
Commission is doing, trying to get an accurate account of the deaths, try to locate where they were. Uh, if we get funding through this Rockefeller grant, we, uh, there may be exhumations and they may do DNA and all that and, and someday may tell you where, whether they have found this missing stepfather all these years. I know one thing, they never did anything about helping us build it again. That's one thing this ride is looking into, this oh, issue of, uh, I know insurance didn't pay oh, anything. My grandmother also on their property, uh, they built the Joe Hodges Stewards. Oh. Their her name was Ellen Clark, uh -huh. Henry Clark. Uh -huh. They built Tulsa's biggest stewards oh. on um, what uh -huh. was named Joe Hodges Stewards. Uh -huh. That's far through stewards. Uh -huh. That was on my grandmother's property. And they give her three hundred of uh, uh, thirty-five hundred dollars for that three thousand. Yeah, three thousand five hundred dollars. And we went out on Norfolk and bought a little half acre from Tom Gentry. 
Tom Ginger was a, a, a he, real estate guy. Wasn't yeah, he, he kind of dealt with real estate. Yeah, yeah, he dealt with real estate. And I heard he did very well back then. Yeah, and we we he was the one we bought the half an acre from out on North Walk then. Now you mentioned that your cousin had a a cafe on Greenwood. Uh-huh. What what was their names? A uh, Bertha Black. Hey, was their cafe destroyed? Yeah, everything was mostly was destroyed. Were they able to rebuild it? No, they never did rebuild it. That was Bishop Otis Clark, another survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. The audio was from two different video recordings, which, as you can probably tell, were recorded decades ago. The first was of Bishop Clark speaking at the Tulsa Race Riot commemoration of 2001. He was 98 years old at the time. The second was from a sit-down interview Bishop Clark did with author and historian Eddie Faye Gates. The audio recordings are courtesy of J. Cavan Ross and the Greenwood Tribune. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Mia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. Bishop Clark left an impression on many people in the 109 years he walked this earth. We'll get to that soon. But first, a bit about Bishop Clark. Bishop Otis G. Clark was born on February 3, 1903 in Meriden, Oklahoma, according to the website of his church, Life Enrichment Ministries. At the time, Oklahoma wasn't even a state. It was considered Indian territory, which we talked about in the first episode of this podcast. When Bishop Clark died, he was older than the state of Oklahoma, which became a state in 1907. Mr. Clark was a young man when the Tulsa Race Massacre occurred in 1921. In his obituary published in the Washington Post, dated May 26, 2012, he is quoted as saying, quote, My home was burned down. My bulldog, Bob, was killed. My stepfather was killed. We never did find him. Never had a funeral. He also said, quote, Family and friends, missing. Jobs, gone. The city took my grandmother's land and didn't give us nothing in return. We suffered, but Tulsa has given us nothing, even to this day, nothing. During the Tulsa Race Massacre, Bishop Clark ran for his life. He eventually reached some train tracks where he hopped on a freight car and did not get off until he was in Milwaukee, according to his obituary. In the first speech you heard in the beginning of this podcast, Bishop Clark says he eventually had to come back to Tulsa, and when he did, he saw the devastation the massacre had caused. He said he left Greenwood again, and this time headed for California. He would not return to Tulsa for many years. A search for Bishop Clark's biological father is what brought him to California, where he eventually settled and worked for several Hollywood stars. He lived in the home of famous movie star Joan Crawford, where he worked as a butler and his wife as a cook. The evangelist knew Clark Gable and Charlie Chapman and was good friends with actor Stephen Fetchett. 
Mr. Clark had a religious conversion while he was serving a sentence in jail for selling bootleg liquor during Prohibition. He started preaching in the 1930s and served as an international minister for many decades until his death. To be clear, this brief overview does not do Bishop Clark's accomplishments and influence justice. His ministry touched the lives of many. Nevertheless, Mr. Clark was also known for his forgiveness and reconciliation movement. While he was outspoken about his experience in the Tulsa Race Massacre and the destruction it caused, he also believed that forgiveness was the only way forward, despite the tragedy he suffered years prior during the massacre. It was at a book signing back in 2011, the year before Bishop Clark's death, where a woman named Kim Johnson met Bishop Clark. Now, Johnson contacted me after hearing this podcast to tell me she and her family are the descendants of a man named Pegleg Taylor and his daughter, Lena Eloise Taylor Butler. Both Pegleg and his daughter, Eloise, are survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. When I interviewed Johnson about her family, she described meeting Bishop Clark and hearing him describe her great-great-grandfather, Pegleg Taylor whose real name was Horace Greeley Beecher Taylor. She tells me Bishop Clark said he knew Pegleg, who Kim says was a well-known businessman in Greenwood, also known as Black Wall Street, before it was burned to the ground. His name went down in history after some people said he single-handedly fought off many members of the mob that were trying to destroy Greenwood in a part of the community called Standpipe Hill. After Johnson learned of her family's involvement in the massacre, she set out to try to learn as much as she could about Horace and his daughter, Eloise. This is what brought her to Bishop Clark's book signing in Seattle, Washington. Here's what she says happened. When we went to Seattle Enrichment Book Center and looked at Before We Die with Bishop Otis Clark, I was horrified and I was really in shock again for quite some time. It was really difficult to process. And even Otis Clark, he gave us an account of Horace Taylor. He said that he was a character. He really liked him. He had a lot of respect for him. But he said, he also said that he was one of the young young men who were helping to load magazines behind either, it was either Mount Zion Church or Mount Pleasant. And he said he was one of the, uh, one of the young men who was helping Horace and another contingent of veterans load up the magazines in defense of North Tulsa. He told us that he was there. When I talked to Kim for the first time, she told me she only found out about the experiences of her great-great-grandfather, Pegleg Taylor, and her great-grandmother, Eloise Taylor, in the Tulsa Race Massacre, shortly after the death of her great-grandmother. It's what she told me next that really shocked me. Back in 1999, Kim says she was at her great-grandmother's home when one day the phone rang. She answered it and said the man calling introduced himself as Dr. Scott Ellsworth. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you may recall that I interviewed Dr. Ellsworth in the previous episode. 
Dr. Ellsworth is a writer, historian, and University of Michigan Afro-American and African Studies professor. He's also the author of Death in a Promised Land, the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. It really is a small world. I immediately contacted Dr. Ellsworth. Here's how he describes that phone call with Kim and his knowledge about Pegleg Taylor. Ellsworth, you've been studying the Tulsa Race Massacre for a long time, but you've also been studying survivors. And we know that one of the legendary tales of the Tulsa Race Massacre was of a man named Peg Leg Taylor. And we've heard various different stories as it concerns him. What we do know is that he was somehow involved in defending Greenwood with, I guess, a gun, at least holding off some of the mob that were trying to come into Greenwood and perhaps loot or shoot. We don't know much else after that. Can you kind of fill in the blanks about who Pegleg Taylor or as his birth name was, Horace Greeley Taylor, who he was? Absolutely. Horace Greeley Beecher Taylor is also known as Pegleg Taylor, was easily, you know, one of the true legendary figures of the Tulsa Race Massacre. You know, he, he was a real person as long as a sort of this figure in folklore. We know that he was born in 1878 in Indian Territory. We don't know a lot about his family. He's living in Tulsa by 1921. Some say that he was a builder or a carpenter. Others claim that, you know, he had different kinds of odd jobs. But at, at the time of the massacre, he's 43 years old. And then once the events start that build to the riot or the massacre, then Peg Leg starts to take on an almost mythical status. There are people who claim that prior to violence breaking out at the courthouse where Dick Rowland was held, that Peg Leg had already broken into a number of white-owned pawn shops and other stores, the edge of the African-American community, and was stealing boxes of ammunition. So African-Americans could either break Roland out of jail or to defend their community. We don't really know whether that's true or not. But the story, and it was one that I heard in the 1970s from riot survivors who told me they had heard tales from the time of the riot on about how Pegleg Taylor helped to defend Standpipe Hill, which is, of course, just a bit north of the main Greenwood, you know, district. And the story went basically that as whites invaded Greenwood, as they begin looting and burning and destroying stores and shops and office buildings and homes, as they got closer to Standpipe Hill, they were suddenly hit by this barrage of fire that just kept going on and on and on and on. And uh, a story that another legendary figure of the ride, a much later day one, a guy named Don Ross, Don Ross said that Pegleg stuck his left foot into the ground on top of Stampipe Hill. He stuck his right peg into the other, and with a machine gun in his hand, he held off whites, hundreds of whites, for more than six hours. And this is a story that's been repeated often and often, but there is no question there's a kernel of truth there. You know, enough people have talked about Pegleg fighting off whites and, and stemming for a while the tide and the evasion of Greenwood from Stampipe Hill, that there's no question that it's true. But Peg Lake, to me, had always been also sort of kind of a mythical figure. You know, it was hard to sort of try to track him down. 
to figure out who he was. We didn't even know his real name, you know, for a long time. And then around around the year 2000, maybe 1999, I got a tip that Pegleg's daughter, Eloise, was still alive and living in the Pacific Northwest. And I got a phone number and I gave that number a call. And finally, you also were able to do a little digging after learning about Eloise's descendants and what one of her great-granddaughters recalled Eloise telling her about the riot. And you did some digging and you were able to find a, a death certificate that was of Horace Greeley Taylor. Can you tell me what it said? Yeah. So, you know, after after I'd, I'd spoken with Kim Johnson, I did a little more digging around and I was sort of flabbergasted to find a death certificate. The way that most people told the peg leg story, either he dies as a martyr up on the hill or they just that, you know, the story ends before we find out what happened to him. And I became curious about that. It turns out there's another guy named Horace Greeley Taylor, who was also born in Oklahoma around the same time, and people were mixing them up. But as it turns out, Pegleg lived on to the ripe old age of 73. I'm not sure what he did in all those intervening years, but he ended up dying in 1951 in Phoenix, Arizona, and his occupation was a minister. After speaking with Dr. Ellsworth, I decided that I needed to interview Kim for this podcast because if what she told me was true and she and some of her family members really are descendants of the infamous Pegleg Taylor and his daughter, Eloise, I wanted to try to fill in the blanks of Taylor's life as well as his daughter's because there's so much more we don't know about them, especially in the years after the Tulsa Race Massacre. You're about to hear that interview, which also includes Kim's sister, Alice Campbell, who she says was very close with their great-grandmother, Eloise. Again, Eloise is Peg Leg Taylor's daughter. I know it's a lot, but I'll go slowly. And to make things more confusing, you will hear Kim and Alice refer to Lena Eloise Taylor Butler as Big Mama. This is their nickname for Eloise, and rarely do Kim and Alice refer to Peg Leg Taylor as such. In this interview, they primarily call him by his real name, which again is Horace Greeley Beecher Taylor. Campbell and Kim Johnson, you are sisters, and you say you are the descendants of Lena Eloise Taylor Butler, who is the daughter of Horace Greeley Taylor, also known back in 1921, before the Tulsa Race Massacre, as Horace Pegleg Taylor. Both Horace and Lena Eloise were survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. So, Kim, you reached out to me on Instagram because you saw a post about this podcast, and I was shocked, actually, when you did that. And when I started researching the story behind Horace, it was fascinating. Can you just explain to me what it was like when you got the call from Dr. Ellsworth? Where were you? What was it like, and what was your reaction? Well, that day... The phone rang. My mom was sitting in her big chair in the living room. And so I answered the phone and then he asked to speak to Eloise Taylor. 
And I said, well, she's next door. I said, Big Mama's next door. So he identified himself and then he wanted to talk to her because she was at that time one of the five or six survivors of the 1921 Tulsa riot. So I got quiet then. Then he said that there was a special that was going to come on like within a week's time or something like that. And for us to watch that because we will get information about the 1921 Tulsa riot as well as a piece that would be said about the great-grandfather Horace Pegleg Taylor or great-great-grandfather. And I'm quiet at this point, you know, hearing what he's saying. So I'm listening to what he's saying. Then he asked me if I understood the gravity of what he said. And I couldn't because I was in shock after that point Hmm. to hear that Big Mama was one of the survivors at that point in 1999 of the 1921 Tulsa riot. So, Kim, you'd heard the story of Pegleg Taylor before. Yes. I I just heard that it was a man that had a, a peg leg and that he lived in Tulsa or something to that extent. Okay, so Alice, you were closer to your great-grandmother. And when Kim, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but when Kim found out that she got a call from Mm -hmm. Dr. Scott Ellsworth, and that was back in 1999, about your great-grandmother, Alice, you were the one that had a conversation with Eloise, Lena Eloise Taylor Butler, also known as Big Mama, in your house. Yes. what did she tell you? I talked to my grandma prior. Yeah, I, I talked. She talked to him. She and I just had a lot of different conversations because I was her caregiver and stuff too. So I'm just going to tell you the story that she told me just out of the blue one day. So she just told me that one day she was just going about her business and she got that feeling that something was getting ready to happen. She told me that the problem that they had initially She said they had issues with them stealing, with them looting, with them vandalizing their property long time before the riot. She said the issues had gone on for years because of jealousy. Now, she said she didn't know exactly what sparked it, but the initial story was that it started at the courthouse. No, it escalated at the courthouse. It started like down the street from the courthouse. She said six or so white men had approached one black man on the street because he was alone. And they started to beat him because of something that had began. That's the mob mentality. And what happened was instead of black people standing around, the owners came out of the shop and they started shooting. Then the mob came. She said that they started when you when you say when you say people came out of the shops, you mean black people came out of their black shops in Greenwood. The owners came out to help defend this guy because it was six men or so on him. But she didn't go home. She was watching it go on. She's telling me what she saw. Now what her dad told her. Because her dad wasn't in the initial fight. He came home to get her out of there. And I'm gonna tell you about that too. But she said they started once they started shooting. She's hid behind a building. You know, like they used to have spaces between the buildings, like a store, and then the house would be a space. They didn't bash them together like they do now. She says she hid between a store and a house. 
and they were shooting. She said, then people started running. You know, the, the women started running and other men were running because they were trying to find shelter because more and more white people started coming from everywhere with weapons. And she said breaks and all kinds of pitchforks. That's what she described, out breaks. And it went nuts. These black people didn't just die. They fought back the best they could. But she said they started on that end of town where the black people started fighting. They set those initial shops on fire at the very beginning. That is unlike anything I've ever heard. I just want to be clear about that. I had always heard that the massacre started at the courthouse where Dick Rowland was being held. You're saying your great-grandmother, Eloise, told you that she was in Greenwood the day the massacre began and saw a Black man get attacked by a white mob. And she saw Black store owners come out of their stores to defend that Black man and start shooting. Is that correct? Well, once they started defending him, they ended up having to shoot. They didn't come out shooting. Okay, and your great-grandmother hid between the buildings and watched all this happen. And that was well before the incident at the courthouse in Tulsa, where the mob had formed to try to seize Dick Rowland. Right. The courthouse was down the street. She said, and before they set the buildings on fire, they took everything they could carry. She was running ahead of the crowd that was running. Now, once they started shooting, and the white people started shooting back, looting and setting stuff on fire, black people started running. People knew it was time to get up out of Dodge. I'm telling you, she says that the energy in the air alone let them know that they had to leave town, not just go home. I think she says they ran past her house or something. I don't think they, a lot of them got to go home, you know, but she, her dad met her past the courthouse. Some legend or conspiracy theory has it that Horace died on Standpipe Hill defending Greenwood. He fought his way to her. The legend has it. She didn't see it, but she heard the legend, the rumors, as they migrated. He took some people out in order to get to his daughter. Because not that he saw her ahead of him, but for some reason she said he knew she was ahead of him. And he had to get to her. Now, she didn't tell me what went on at the courthouse because she kept running. Okay, she did say there was a lot of bad things going on at the courthouse. But it wasn't just there. Yeah, it, it was like that was the epicenter of it. And they had got wind all over the place. So they coming out the woods on the west side of town, on the east side of town. These people don't even know what's going on downtown. It's being attacked. You know, all these innocent people died, not just men, babies, women. I'm sorry. Mm. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. You're not making me cry. She was just, if you could have heard her, she was there. She wasn't an older woman. She wasn't no grown woman. She was 19. You know, she was a young woman watching people that she cooked for, that she cared for. She cared for these people. She was a domestic in the town. She worked, even though her daddy was rich, she still worked. And these people were being killed in front of her. These people were being shot. This woman got, old woman got shot on the front porch. And she ran to the woman's house. She said she was trying to get to this woman's house. And they killed her. They, she said it was like they were shooting past her. And my grandma, she was terrified of any backfiring from cars or anything. So she was 19 at the time. 19. After she got past this the courthouse, she got 
past this lady's house. She didn't name no streets or anything like that. But the way she was running, the courthouse, she, the way she was talking, everything was on her left-hand side. So we had a map. She was running up the street, and everything was on the left-hand side. She said she got just to the end of this woman's house after she was shot, and her daddy grabbed her. Sure, take your time. My sister was telling me that there was a discrepancy about his amputation. He was amputated because of infection from a gunshot. Ooh. All the people that were displaced in Oklahoma didn't have nowhere to go. All these people, a lot of them starved to death. These people lost everything. They make it sound like oh, it was just an incident. These people lost their lives because somebody wanted what they have. She said they all, the ones who made it out of town, she said they had to lay out in the woods on their stomachs with their face on the ground. She said they couldn't move. They couldn't breathe. The people was out there hunting them like they were animals. They wanted to kill them all. Do you understand? They didn't want to just solve what happened. They they found a reason. They had been waiting on the reason to go in that town and, and, and destroy the black people. And once they started, they hunted the people. And then they dropped bombs from the sky. Do you know what that turpentine did to the people that was left? Anyway, her dad, they said once they figured they couldn't find nobody else. They found some of the people. I'm telling you, she said they found some of the people that were out there in the woods laying on their stomach. Lord, help these people. And they just shot them right there on the ground where they laid. I'm talking about kids, women. They didn't care. Old people, people who had breastfed them, they didn't give a damn. They killed them right there on the ground, she said. And, and nobody, you couldn't scream, you couldn't do nothing. She said when they finally, her daddy told her to get up. Get up, come on. She said she couldn't even move. He had to hurt her. She said he had to hurt her to make her stand up. He had to hurt her. And they walked. They did not ride. They walked. She said, I, she, they walked and walked. Her, she said, heard about 25 people scattered out, walked to a neighboring town. And I kept, I didn't know Oklahoma real well. I used to ask her, was that Muskogee? And she told me it's, it's another town not too far from Tulsa, far enough to walk, I guess, next to Tulsa. She said, and it was there that they got help from other black families. And it was there that they decided they would never talk about it again. And I didn't meet, I didn't know nothing about this woman or that all this had happened until what, 97, 1997. When she told me this and it's like, how many years was that? She died in 2000. She got close to a hundred. She started yeah. telling me a lot. I know a lot of stories.
And this is what is not talked about a lot, but it seems like the massacre had a really detrimental effect on the mental health of people in the community of Greenwood and survivors of the attack. Those people had PTSD. Mm-hmm. Imagine, I'm, I'm just saying imagine, I wasn't there, but imagine you come out of a situation like slavery. They came out of there and came up. They got their own money, got their own land, they got their own banks, own hospitals. They're not telling you what was in that town. These people had their own schools, their own hospitals, their own library, their own everything. They even had their own political system. So they were already stealing and killing Black people as it was. But Eloise Taylor and her father, Pegleg Taylor, they made it to another town, right? That's where they stayed and got help. And I think they only stayed, got help, got warm, got clothes, got food, and moved on. Because they people didn't have no way to keep you. You know, they were barely making it themselves. So I think they migrated on because they lived in Kansas for a while. They lived in Kansas, and she got pregnant there because her name was Watkins or Walters or something, too. She married a man. It was Walter Williams. Clarence Williams. She married a man named Clarence Williams. Right. Her butler. She didn't become butler until here. Yeah. In Seattle. She married um, Eugene. So they left Greenwood and they never looked back after the massacre. It wasn't nothing to look back to. Her and her dad got to this town. And he became a bootlegger. Because one of the things that he owned in the town of Greenwood, he was a bootlegger there too. (laughs) So he picked up that and that's what he became. So she eventually left Kansas and moved back to Oklahoma, this time to Oklahoma City. Did she say whatever happened to her father? In Kansas? I guess. She never, one only thing she even talked about him was when she talked about how evil and mean he was. But as I grew older and, and lived life, I understand. Once you a person gives you everything, and then all of a sudden they can't, you don't understand they can't. All you understand is they won't. She left him. She never even mentioned that he died. I'm telling you, the only thing she talked about him after the riot stuff, because before that, she talked about him like he was a hero. If you could hear the way she talked about her dad, he was a king. He was all everything. But her big mama and her father were estranged. Once they got where they were going, she said he became abusive, hateful, mean, stingy. You know, I didn't know that was the reason for it until later. And now I know why. And I also know why my grandparents acted the way they did. Because somebody took all their money and they had to live. So they went from Greenwood to another town in Oklahoma, then Kansas. There, Eloise, who would be your great-grandmother, had her daughter, Gloria, who would be your grandmother. How many years did they stay in Kansas? Because um, Gloria was a baby. Gloria is my grandma. Only child. Yeah, her own child. Grandma didn't want a big mom, didn't want a baby. As it was. Thank God she had Gloria. My grandmother was three. When they, so they didn't, they didn't stay long in three years. And she went back to Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, because my grandmother lived in Tulsa all her life. She, she lived in that area in Oklahoma. Were Eloise and Gloria estranged? Yes. Yes. My great-grandmother never wanted 
children. She was one of those women who said she didn't want no kids, told people she didn't want no kids, and didn't take care of the kids. But she was mother enough to let other people who would care for the kid care for the kid. Gloria had babies. So she had two kids. Gloria abandoned mom and Woody yes, like her did. mama did. Right. And she was gone. So to be clear, your great-grandmother, Eloise, who survived the Tulsa Race Massacre with your great-great-grandfather, Pegleg Taylor, Eloise had one child, Gloria, who she abandoned. And then Gloria had two children, a girl who would be your mother, Allison Kim, as well as a boy who would be your uncle. And then Gloria abandoned her children. Is that right? My mama's mother had my mother. She was about 14 when she married my mother's father. He was in the army. So it was uh, dysfunctional from the beginning. Kim, you said you didn't meet Eloise or Big Mama until you were an adult? Yes, actually, because she came out here and I didn't meet Big Mama until I came out here just before I went into the military. I think I was like 27, maybe. That's when I met Big Mama for the first time. But my grandmother, Gloria, I met her at her funeral because I lived with my dad for a little while because mom abandoned us and my dad had to come and get me. And I lived in in California with him for five years. So I went back to Oklahoma when I was 10. And then that's where the funeral for Gloria was. She, I met her at her funeral. So ever since the massacre, there's just been this cycle of dysfunction and abandonment. Yep. And I believe that with Eloise or Big Mama, I believe that she took Gloria to Nellie, who was her grandmother, probably her mom's mom. And that's where Gloria stayed and was raised in, you know, in Kansas and, you know, Big Mama and Horace and whoever else, you know, probably migrated there and they stayed there because Big Mama and Gloria were together living in the same home in Oklahoma City in 1940. So for however long they lived together because Granddaddy George was there too. It was Granddaddy George and Gloria my mom, who was three at the time, and then it was Eloise and her husband, Clarence. They were living on 2nd Street in Oklahoma City in the 1940s, because that was the 1940 census. But after that, I'm not sure what took place with Big Mama, because what I knew of Big Mama was distant. I knew that I had a great-grandmother that lived in Seattle, Washington, and she was the mother of Gloria. That was pretty much what I knew. I believe and I, you know, this is just something that, you know, I wonder about because Big Mama was a a domestic worker. And from what I understood that my mom said was that Big Mama was a domestic worker in Horace's boarding house. He had a boarding house there. In Tulsa. Yes. As well as a, a pool hall, a couple of jute joints. He had Taylor and Sons Roofing, where they did that little flappy statch or flappy stuff that you nail on. He also had a a hall based on what uh, Eddie Faye Gates was saying, you know, that had a really big area where you could meet and those kind of things. And so I think that she was already getting that exposure through the boarding house because I'm sure prostitution and stuff was going on within that boarding house where she was a domestic worker cleaning up, cooking and doing 
you know, those kind of things, even when she was in Greenwood. Do you think all of the dysfunction stems from the Tulsa race massacre? Yes, I think, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. It threw off the cycle all the way up to me. You know, yeah, yeah, it's a generational curse. It certainly is. Now I've done a lot of healing. I've come to understand it, it may not make things right. It wasn't right. It, uh, it doesn't make it good, but it, it sure gives you an understanding of why you're the way you are. You say, oh, okay, that's why. Now I can go forward and fix this. I'm not just messed up. You know, it, it, something happened to my ancestors, which conditioned the ancestors that followed to condition me. Do you understand? If nothing else but to keep me safe, warm, and fed. It wasn't to hurt me, but now that I know why I'm the way I am, I've set about to make a change in that. I appreciate them, but I don't come from poor people. I come from wealthy people on both sides of the family. My mother's father's family was rich too and had their money taken away from them. So I'm saying I come from wealth, but both sides of the family taught us poverty. I'm just trying to understand the trajectory of your great-grandmother's life. So your great-grandmother, Lena Eloise Taylor Butler, back then she was Lena Eloise Taylor, before the massacre. She and your great-great-grandfather, Horace Greeley Beecher Taylor, they both survived the massacre. They fled Greenwood. They never looked back after the massacre. They went to a nearby town. They got some aid, and then they moved on to Kansas. She lived there for several years, about three, right? Right. She went from Oklahoma City to Vancouver. She lived in Vancouver a couple years, then she moved. Okay, so after Kansas, you said she lived in Wichita, Kansas. So Eloise left Kansas with her daughter, Gloria, who would be your grandmother, as well as Eloise's Aunt Titi, while Eloise left her father behind. Then Eloise, her daughter, Gloria, and Aunt Titi went to Oklahoma City. I know that the census does show and prove that they lived on 2nd Street where she married Clarence Williams because Clarence Williams was an older man. Well, yeah. And he, that was in 1940. But Clarence Williams had said to her that it wasn't good for a young woman to have a child without, I guess, being married. And so that was the reason, from what I understood, that she married Clarence yeah. Williams. So she left Oklahoma City. She went to Vancouver for a couple of years, then settled in Seattle for the rest of her life. From what I understand and from what I know of her, my great-grandmother, Eloise Butler, was a strict businesswoman. She ran a whorehouse. Yes, she had a brothel on 933 20th Avenue. Where? 933 20th Avenue, Seattle, Washington, 98122. (laughs) She had pictures where it was an after-hour spot. Anybody that was, everybody came to my big mama's house. My grandmama sold marijuana. Till she died, she, my wedding present in 1982, I was in the military, she gave me three joints. <laughs> my grandmother ran a brothel, she made beer, she was a, a licensed practical nurse, worked by day. It seems like a lot of people in Greenwood had good things going for them, but after the massacre, it seems like Eloise took a detour. It's safe to say that she fell on hard times after she left they Greenwood. Fell. They had no clothes, no money, no food. No shelter, no means, no relatives. Do you understand? Everybody they knew and grew up with who cared for were dead. 
It was her and her daddy. What about her mother? She never talked about her mother. Kim, do you think Lena Eloise Taylor Butler's life would have been different had it not been for the Tulsa Race Massacre? I believe so. She shut everything out. Maybe that was a way for her to survive, is to close and shut down everything. I mean, even to the point of her not really being able to aid her child, because I believe that Gloria was raised largely in Kansas, you know, because her grandmother, Nellie, had Gloria. And so it's possible that Big Mama may not had a lot to do with her rearing at that point, you know, for whatever reason. But I believe that that she could have been different. I'm going to put my journalism hat on for a moment, since I am a journalist. There are some things that Kim and Alice said about Horace Greeley Beecher Taylor, or Pegleg Taylor, and his daughter, Lena Eloise Taylor Butler, who they refer to as Big Mama, which I haven't been able to verify, either because it's been almost 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre, or the people who would have firsthand knowledge about what they said are dead. Also, so much was destroyed during the Tulsa Race Massacre. For example, I cannot verify that the Tulsa Race Massacre began around the time of the beating of a Black man in Black Wall Street and a fight between white and Black residents of Tulsa that ensued after that beating, as Alice said. I cannot verify the real reason Pegleg Taylor's foot was amputated. I cannot verify that Eloise Taylor Butler, or Big Mama, ran a brothel and sold marijuana in addition to being a nurse. And while I do believe that Kim and Alice are descendants of Lena Eloise Taylor Butler and her father, Horace Greeley Beecher Taylor, or Pegleg Taylor, I haven't seen their family tree or DNA evidence suggesting as much. However, I have learned of and seen some pretty convincing evidence. For example, I do know that Kim learned of the experience of Eloise Taylor Butler, who would be her great-grandmother, after she took the phone call of Dr. Scott Ellsworth, who informed her about it over 20 years ago. As you heard earlier, Dr. Ellsworth confirms this with me. Kim also sent me a copy of the death certificate of a Gloria Louise Stalker. On that death certificate, Gloria's mother is listed as Eloise Taylor. You'll recall that Eloise, who escaped the Tulsa Race Massacre with her father, Pegleg Taylor, had a daughter named Gloria, who is Kim and Alice's grandmother, according to the sisters. I've also seen a medallion that Kim says belonged to Eloise, who again would be her great-grandmother. One side reads, Oklahoma Medal of Distinction, survivor of the Tulsa Race Riot. The other side reads, 80th Anniversary, 1921-2001. to Legislative Black Caucus. I had never heard of such a medallion, so I reached out to attorney, consultant, and author Hannibal Johnson, who you heard from in episodes five and six. He said, quote, The state of Oklahoma presented medallions to identified massacre survivors after the issuance of the final report of the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, released on February 28, 2001. Nevertheless, if Kim and Alice's account of the lives of Tulsa Race Massacre survivors, Pegleg Taylor and his daughter Eloise, are true, 
That would be a sobering example of the deep and crippling destructive nature of institutional racism and the trauma endured by millions of African Americans on American soil. A man who not only battled racism and just about every obstacle conceivable to Blacks in the early 20th century, as well as a disability in the form of an amputated foot. A teenage girl who could have experienced the benefits of prosperity and education and the opportunity afforded to so many Black people in Greenwood at the time, which Black people elsewhere throughout America rarely experienced. And within hours, all of that goes up in flames, changing the trajectory of their lives and seemingly not necessarily for the better. Now imagine this father and daughter and multiply their experience by the thousands of people who lost everything during the Tulsa race massacre or worse. Hundreds killed, property and fortunes gone, homes, schools and businesses destroyed, livelihoods gone, and potentially generations of wealth wiped out in less than a day. Notwithstanding those who were able to rebuild after the massacre, many did not, including Pegleg Taylor and his daughter Eloise. The long-term impact of this trauma seems to have reverberated down through the generations of their descendants up until the present day. And before you go, I want to share some exciting news. Black Wall Street 1921 is now a part of the Agora Podcast Network, which is a network of independent podcasts which cater to curious and discerning listeners. Agora Podcasts offer a rich intellectual array of podcasts for listeners of all tastes, and the topics are as diverse as all of the hosts' personalities. However, our podcasters are unified by the single goal of telling interesting, well-researched stories and telling them straight without cut corners, agendas, or spin. One of the podcasts featured on the network is called Mid-Atlantic, conversations about U.S., U.K., and world politics, hosted by Roy Field Brown. Mid-Atlantic looks at politics and current events in Britain and in the U.S. Each show consists of American and British pundits reviewing and commenting on the most important U.S. and British pieces of news that week. Sometimes the show does a deep dive into a particular topic, such as the British ex-speaker of the House, John Burkow. Always accessible, Mid-Atlantic lifts the lid on the special relationship between the transatlantic cultural cousins. So check it out. In the next episode, we'll explore what happened when the burning, looting, and killing stopped in Greenwood on June 1st, 1921. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages by searching for Black Wall Street 1921. And make sure you also visit our website, blackwallstreet-1921.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and keep up with all of our episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.